0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Navlo Storytime. So, hope you've been well. I haven't recorded a podcast in about a week now, which felt very strange to me because up until now I'd been doing um, episodes every few days, so it was very frequent. But as I keep saying, I want this to be very chill, and I don't actually want to do it too frequently because that might put me off in the long run. So, I'm gonna see how once a week kind of thing goes. And um, yeah, if you want to give me any input to the kind of schedule that you would like, Let me know. And as always, if you want me to read any books in particular, let me know. Preferably send me the PDF and I can get to that as soon as possible. Today, as you may have read in the title, we will be reading, or I will be reading, Memoirs of a Geisha by Arthur Golden. First things first, the font for the word geisha, absolutely beautiful, mate. (laughs) Beautiful. (laughs) I bought some calligraphy pens the other day because I've been doing a lot of calligraphy. And um, I just feel like that brushwork looks so well with those pens. I tried to imitate it just in a quick motion. It flopped, but, um, you know, with a bit more effort, I think it could look very nice. Moving on from that, though, um, I wanted to give you a really quick story about this book. And also, by the way, when we're reading this, and I'm going to read it in a moment, I'm going to skip the first section, which is the translations notes, translators notes, and just start from chapter one. I normally start from the beginning, and obviously I won't finish the whole book in one reading, and that is because maybe I can continue it another time, or you can read it in your own time now that I've given you a taster. And my bookmark was on chapter 3, so I have read this in the past. Clearly did not get it very far. But anyway, the story is that this book was gifted to me when I was in 6th form by a classmate of mine. And near my 6th form, there was a really nice shop. It was quite big as well. A bookshop where you could basically take books for free. It was limited to 3, per- three items per day. And you could also donate books and it was really cool because a lot of the books were new some of them were like um collectible i don't know if you could say that for books but like quite rare books um, i still have some of the ones that i took i took this really cool graphic novel thing in like hindi and some french book and stuff and i gave some things as gifts as well it was just really cool and i donated stuff too so yeah that was a great place and a classmate of mine picked this book up for me and gave it to me because she thought i might like it and i'd heard a lot about this book it is quite famous but of course, I only made it to chapter 3, so I've never finished it. And I believe there's a film as well, but I haven't actually watched it. Um, yeah. And then, back to the shop thing. Unfortunately, very sadly, the shop closed down. And guess why? It closed down because of tax evasion. <laughs> I shouldn't be laughing, this is quite serious. So, there's a bit of tea for today. Um, it kind of just disappeared into thin air, and then I heard it was because of tax evasion, which was really sad because it was like a charity right? Um, hopefully that was, like, a fruitless rumour, and that isn't true. But, you know, you'll be surprised at the things you hear. Um, why did I actually tell you this? I don't know, I just thought it was interesting. And this is how I got my hands on this book. Nonetheless, though, we shall read it today. And I'm not liking the font and the size of the text, but, you know, we'll try this anyhow. So, yeah, now it's 143. 40 plus 40 is what... 2.20, 2.23, oh my god, I just did that really fast, wow, okay, (laughs) okay, chapter one, page number seven, let's go. Suppose that you and I were sitting in a quiet room, overlooking a garden, chatting and sipping at our cups of green tea while we talked about something that had happened a long while ago, and I said to you, that afternoon when I met so-and-so was the very best afternoon of my life, and also the very worst afternoon. I expect you might put down your teacup and say, well now, which was it? Was it the best or the worst? Because it possibly couldn't have been both. Ordinarily, I'd have to laugh at myself and agree with you. But the truth is that that afternoon when I met Mr Tanaka Ichiro really was the best and the worst of my life. He seemed so fascinating to me. Even the the fish smell on his hands was a kind of perfume. If I had never known him, I'm sure I would not have become a geisha. I wasn't born and raised to be a Kyoto geisha. I wasn't even born in Kyoto. I'm a fisherman's daughter from a little town called Yoroito on the sea of Japan. In all my life, I've never told more than a handful of people anything about Yoroito, or about the house in which I grew up, or about my mother and my father, or my older sister, and certainly not about how I became a geisha, or what it was like to be one. That was a long sentence, you know. Most people would much rather carry on with their fantasies that my mother and grandmother were geisha, and that I began my training in dance when I was weaned from the breast and so on. As a matter of fact, one day many years ago I was pouring a cup of sake for a man who happened to be ha- no sorry, happened to mention that he had been in Yoroido only the previous week. Well, I felt as a bird must feel when it has flown across the ocean and comes upon a creature that knows its nest. I was so shocked, and I couldn't stop myself from saying, "Yoroido, well, that's where I grew up." This poor man, his face went through the most remarkable series of changes. He tried his best to smile, though it didn't come out well because he couldn't get the look of shock off of his face. Yoroido, he said, "You can't mean it." I long ago developed a very practised smile, which I call my "no" smile, because it re- it resembles a "no" mask whose feathers, oh my god, what's wrong with me, whose features are frozen. Wow, you know, I think I was doing pretty well up till now. (laughs) But we continue. Its advantage is that men can interpret it however they want. You can imagine how often I've relied on it. I decided I'd better use it just then, and of course it worked. He let out all his breath and tossed down the cup of sake I'd poured for him before giving an enormous laugh, I'm sure was prompted more by relief, than anything else. The very idea, he said, with another big laugh. You? Growing up in a dump like Yuroido? That's like making tea in a bucket. And when he laughed again, he said to me, That's why you're so much fun, Sayori-san. Sometimes you make me believe your little jokes are real. I don't much like thinking of myself as a cup of tea made in a bucket, but I suppose in a way it must be true. After all, I did grow up in Yuroido, and no one would suggest it's a glamorous spot. Hardly no one ever visits it. As for the people who live there, they never have occasion to leave. You're probably wondering how I came to leave it myself. That's where my story begins. In our little fishing village of Yoroido, I lived in what I called a tipsy house. It stood near a cliff where the wind off the ocean was always blowing. As a child, it seemed to me as if the ocean had caught a terrible cold, because it always it was always wheezing and there would be spells when it let out a huge sneeze, which is to say there was a burst of wind with a tremendous spray. I decided our tiny house must have been offended by this ocean sneezing in its face from time to time, and took to leaning back because it wanted to get out of the way. Probably it would have collapsed if my father hadn't cut timber from a wrecked fishing boat to prop up the the caves. No, what? The eaves. Oopsie. Um, which made the house look like a tipsy old man, leaning on his crutch. Inside the tipsy house, I lived inside... Hmm? I... I lived something... Oh, my bad, my bad, Tipsy, tipsy. Inside the tipsy house, I lived something of a lopsided life. Oh, you know, that makes me think of lop... rabbits. Floppy rabbit. No, lopsided rabbits. What? Oh my god, I think it's just called lop rabbits. I don't know if you've ever looked into rabbits before, but they are so cute and also rabbits, right, they're really difficult to look after, as with most animals, small animals as well. Um, Like, there is so much to consider if you were to ever buy a rabbit, you need to have enough space for them, especially if they're going to be an indoors pet, Um, and you have to make sure that the nails don't grow grow too long, and especially if they have the long floppy ears, because they might accidentally, you know, scratch their ears and that could hurt. Their vet bills are quite expensive, they have to have regular checkups for their teeth and stuff, they have to have a never-ending supply of hay, um, which could be messy in your room. Why am I telling you this? I don't know. It was a tangent. But let's continue. Because from my earliest years, I was very much like my mother, and hardly at all like my father or older sister. My mother said it was because we were made just the same. She and I, and it was very true. We both had the same peculiar, peculiar eyes of a sort you almost never see in Japan. Instead of being dark brown like everyone else's, my mother's eyes were a translucent grey and mine were just the same. When I was very young, I told my mother I thought someone had poked a hole in her eyes and all the ink had drained out, which she thought was very funny. The fortune teller said her eyes were so pale because of too much water in her personality, so much that the other four elements were hardly present at all. And this, they explained, was why her features matched so poorly. People in the village often said she ought to have been extremely attractive because her parents had been. Well, a peach has a lovely taste, and so does a mushroom, but you can't put the two together. This was the terrible trick nature played on her. Wow, that's kind of mean, you know. But Also, the peach and mushroom thing, I guess that's true. But like, wow. Screw those people for enforcing their um, ideals of beauty onto this poor lady with the drained out eyes, as this writer describes, which is quite cool. Imagery description. (laughs) Where were we? Oh, she had her mother's pouty mouth, but her father's angular jaw, which gave the impression of a delicate picture with much too heavy a frame. And her lovely grey eyes were surrounded by thick lashes that must have been striking on her father, but in her case, it only made her look startled. My mother always said she'd married my father because she had too much water in her personality, and he had too much wood in his. People who knew my father understood right away what she was talking about. Water flows from place to place 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 quickly, and always finds a quick crack to spill through. Wood, on the other hand, holds fast to the earth. In my father's case, this was a good thing, for he was a fisherman, and a man with wood in his personality is at ease on the sea. In fact, my father was more at ease on the sea than anywhere else, and never left it far behind him. He smelled like the sea, even after he had bathed. Bathed? Bathed. Bathed. Even after he had bathed. Even after he had bathed. I think it's bathed, okay. Um, When he wasn't fishing, he sat on the floor, in our dark front room, mending a fishing net. And if a fishing net had been a sleeping creature, he wouldn't even have awakened it, at the speed he worked. He did everything slowly, Even when he summoned a look of concentration, you could run outside and train the bath in the time it took him to rearrange his features. You know, slow and steady wins the race, they say, so... His face was very heavily creased, and into each crease he had tucked some worry or other so that it wasn't really his own face any longer, but more like a tree that had nests of birds in all of its branches. He had to struggle constantly to make it, and always looked worn out from the effort. When I was six or seven, I learned something about my father I never told anyone. N- oh, no, 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 no. I learned something about my father I'd never known. Okay. One day I asked him, Daddy, why are you so old? <laughs> what kind of question? <laughs> okay. He hoisted up his eyebrows at this so that they formed little sagging umbrellas over his eyes. And he let out a long breath and shook his head and said, I don't know. When I turned to my mother, she gave me a look, meaning she would answer the question for me another time. The following day, without saying a word, she walked me down the hill toward the village and turned out a path into a graveyard in the woods. She led me to three graves in the corner with three white marker posts, much taller than I was. They had stern-looking black characters written written top to bottom on them, but I hadn't attended the school in our little village long enough to know where one ended and the next began. Same, bro, same. My mother pointed to them and said, Natsu, the wife of Sakamoto Minoru. Sakamoto was the name of my father. <gasps> what? He, her father, what? Okay, I should just read. Okay, wait. Died age 24 in the 19th year of Meiji. Then she pointed to the next one. Jinichiro, the son of Sakamoto Minoru died age 6 in the 19th year of Meiji and to the next one, which was identical except for the name, Masao and the age, which was 3. It took me a while to understand that my father had been married before, a long time ago and that his whole family had died. I went back to these graves not long afterward and found, as I stood there, that sadness was a very heavy thing. My body weighed twice what it had only a moment earlier as if those graves were pulling me down toward them. With all this water and all this wood, the two of them ought to have made a good balance and produced children with a proper arrangement of elements. I'm sure it was a surprise to them that they ended up with one of each. For it wasn't just that I resembled my mother and had even inherited her unusual eyes. My sister, Satsu, was much like my father as anyone else could be. Satsu was six years older than me, and of course, being older, she could do things I couldn't do. But Satsu had a remarkable quality of doing everything in a way that seemed like a complete accident. For example, if you asked her to pour a bowl of soup from one from a pot to the stove, she would get the job done. But in a way, that looked like she'd spilled it into the bowl just by luck. One time, she even caught herself with a fish. And I don't mean with a knife, she was using it to clean the fish. She was carrying a fish wrapped in paper up the hill from the village when it slid out and fell against her leg in such a way as to cut her with one of its fins. Our parents might have had other children besides Satsu and me, particularly since my father hoped for a boy um, to fish with him. But when I was seven, my mother grew terribly ill with what was probably bone cancer, though at the time I had no idea what was wrong. Her only escape from discomfort was to sleep which she began to do the way a cat does, which is to say, more or less constantly. As the months passed, she slept most of the time, and soon began to groan whenever she was awake. I knew something in her was changing quickly, but because of so much water in her personality, they didn't seem worrisome to me. Sometimes she grew thin in a matter of months, but grew strong again just as quickly. But by the time I was nine, the bones in her face had begun to protrude and she never gained weight again afterward. I didn't realise the water was draining out of her because of her illness. Just as seaweed is naturally soggy, you see, but turns brittle as it dries. My mother was giving up more and more of her essence. Then one afternoon, I was sitting on the pitted floor of our dark front room, singing to a cricket I found that morning, when a voice called out at the door. Oi, open up! It's Dr. Mura. Mura? Miura. Miura. okay. Dr. Mura came to the village once a week and had made a point of walking up the hill to check on my mother ever since her illness had begun. My father was at home that day because a terrible storm was coming. He sat in his usual spot on the floor with his two big spider-like hands tangled up in a fishing net. But he took a moment to point his eyes at me and raise one of his fingers. This means, oh sorry, this meant he wanted me to answer the door. Dr. Miura was a very important man, or so we believed in our village. He had studied in Tokyo and reportedly knew more Chinese characters than anyone. He was far too proud to notice a creature like me. When I opened the door for him, he slipped out of his shoes and stepped right past me into the house. Why, Sakamoto-san, he said to my father, I wish I had your life. Out on the sea, fishing all day. How glorious! And then on rough days, you take a rest. I see your wife is still asleep. He went on. What a pity. What? Wow. What a pity. <laughs> I thought I might examine her. Oh? Said my father. I won't be around next week, you know. Perhaps you might wake her for me. My father took a while to untangle his hands from the net, but at last he stood. Chio chan he said to me. Get the doctor a cup of tea. My name back then was Chio. I wouldn't have been known by my geisha name, Sayuri, until years later. Oh, I can't remember that from when I first read it. Although that was like five years ago, kind of. Five years ago, wow. Time flies, everybody, time flies. My father and the doctor went into the other room where my mother lay sleeping. I tried to listen at the door, but I could only hear my mother groaning and nothing of what she said. I occupied my hands with making tea and soon the doctor came back, rubbing his hands together and looking very stern. My father came to join him and they sat together at the table in the centre of the room. The time has come to say something to you, Sakamoto-san, Dr. Muriel began. You need to have a talk with one of the women in the village. Mrs. Sugi, perhaps. Ask her to make a nice new robe for your wife. I haven't the money, doctor, my father said. We've all grown poorer lately, I understand what you're saying. But you owe it to your wife. She shouldn't die in that tattered robe she's wearing. So she's going to die soon. A few more weeks, perhaps. She's in terrible pain. Death will release her. After this, I couldn't hear their voice- I could hear their voices any longer. For in my ears, I heard a sound like a bird's wing flapping in panic. Perhaps it was my heart. I don't know. But if you've ever seen a bird trapped inside the great hall of a temple, looking for some way out, well, that was how my mind was reacting. It had never occurred to me that my mother wouldn't simply go on being sick. I won't say I'd never wondered what might happen if she should die. I did wonder about it. In the same way, I wondered what might happen if our house was swallowed up in earthquake. There could hardly be life after such an event. I thought I would die first, my father was saying. You're an old man, with a son, but your health is good. You might have four or five years. I'll leave you some more of those pills for your wife. You can give them to her, two at a time if you need to. They talked about the pills a bit longer, and then Dr. Miura left. My father went on sitting for a long time, while in silence, with his back to me. He wore no shirt, but only his loose-fitting skin. The more I looked at him, the more he began to seem like just a curious collection of shapes and textures. His spine was a path of knobs. His head, with its discoloured splotches, might have been a bruised fruit. His arms were sticks, wrapped in old leather, dangling from two bumps, If my mother died, how could I go on living in the house with him? I didn't want to be away from him, but whether he was there or not, the house would be just as empty when my mother had left it. At last, my father said my name in a whisper. I went and knelt beside him. Something very important, he said. His face was so much heavier than usual, with his eyes rolling around, almost as though he'd lost control of them. I thought he was struggling to tell me my mother would die soon, but all he said was, "'Go down to the village. Bring back some incense for the altar.' Our tiny Buddhist altar rested on an old crate beside the entrance to the kitchen. It was the only thing of value in our tipsy house. In front of a rough carving of Amida, the Buddha of the Western Paradise, stood, a tiny, black mortuary tab- no, stood tiny black mortuary tablets bearing the Buddhist names, "'of our dead ancestors. "'But, Father, wasn't there anything else?' "'I hoped he would reply, "'but he only made a gesture with his hands "'that meant for me to leave. "'The path from our house followed the edge of the sea cliffs "'before turning inland toward the village. "'Walking it on a day like this was difficult, "'but I remember feeling grateful "'that the fierce wind drew my mind from the things troubling me. "'The sea was violent,' with waves like stones chipped into blades, sharp enough to cut it. It seemed to me the world itself was feeling just as I felt. Was life nothing more than a storm that constantly washed away what had only, what had been there only a moment before, and left behind something barren and unrecognisable? I never had such a thought before. To escape it, I ran down the path until the village came into view below me. Yoroido was a tiny town, just at the opening of an inlet usually the water was spotted with fishermen but today i could just see a few boats coming back looking to me as they always did like water bugs kicking along the surface the storm was coming in earnest now i could hear its roar the fishermen on the inlet began to soften as they disappeared within the curtain of rain and then they were completely they were gone completely I could see the storm climbing the slope toward me. The first drops hit me like quail eggs, and in a matter of seconds, I was as wet as if I'd fallen into the sea. Yoroido had only one road. Leading right to the front door of the Japan Coastal Seafood Company, it was lined with a number of houses whose front rooms were used for shops. I ran across the street towards the Okada house where dry goods were sold, But then something happened to me, one of those trivial things with huge consequences, like losing your step and falling in front of a train. The packed dirt road was slippery in the rain, and my feet went out from under me. I fell forward onto onto one side of my face. I suppose I must have knocked myself into a daze because I remember only a kind of numbness and a feeling of something in my mouth I wanted to spit out. I heard voices and felt myself turned on my back. I was lifted and carried. I could tell they were taking me into the Japan Coastal Seafood Company because I smelled the odour of fish wrapping itself around me. I heard a slapping sound as they slid a catch of fish from one of the wooden tables onto the floor and laid me onto its slimy surface. I knew I was wet from the rain, and bloody too, and that I was barefoot and dirty, and wearing peasant clothing. What I didn't know was that this was the moment... That would change everything. For it was in this condition I found myself looking up into the face of Mr. Tanaka Ichiro. I'd seen Mr. Tanaka in our village many times before. He lived a much l- he lived in a much larger town nearby, but came every day, for his family owned, oh, such a long name, the Japan Coastal Seafood Company. <laughs> he didn't wear peasant clothing like the fishermen, but rather a man's kimono with kimono trousers that made him look to me like the illustrations you may have seen of the samurai. His skin was smooth and tight as a drum. His cheekbones were shiny hillocks, like the crisp skin of a grilled fish. I'd always found him fascinating. When I was in the street throwing a beanbag with other children and Mr Tanaka appeared to stroll out of the seafood company, I always stopped what I was doing to watch him. I lay there on that slimy table while Mr Tanaka examined my lip, pulling it down with his fingers and tipping his head this way and that. All at once he caught sight of my grey eyes, which were fixed on his face with such fascination. I couldn't pretend. I hadn't been staring at him. He didn't give me a sneer, as if to say I was an impudent girl, and he didn't look away as if it had made no difference where I looked or what I thought. We stared at each other for a long moment. So long it gave me a chill, even there in the muggy air of the seafood company. I know you, he said at last. You're old Sakamoto's little girl. Even as a child, I could tell that Mr Tanaka saw the world around him as it really was. He never wore the dazed look of my father. To me, he seemed to really see the sap bleeding from the trunks of the pine trees and the circle of brightness in the sky where the sun was smothered by clouds. He lived in the world that was visible, even if it didn't always please him to be there. I knew he noticed the trees and the mud and the children in the street, but I had no reason to believe he'd ever notice me. Perhaps this is why, when he spoke to me, tears came stinging to my eyes. Mr Tanaka raised me into a sitting position. I thought he was going to tell me to leave, but instead he said, Don't swallow that blood, little girl, unless you want to make a stone in your stomach. I'd spit it onto the floor if I were you. A girl's blood, Mr Tanaka, said one of the men. Here, will we bring the fish? Fishermen are terribly superstitious, you see. They especially don't like women to have anything to do with fishing. One man in our village, Mr Yamamura, found his daughter playing in a in his boat one morning. He beat her with a stick, oh, not a singler, and then washed out the boat with sake and lye, so strong it bleached streaks of colouring from the wood. Even this wasn't enough. Mr Yamamura had the Shinto priest come and bless it. All this because his daughter had done nothing more than play where the fish were caught. And here, Mr Tanaka was suggesting I spit blood onto the floor of the room where the fish were cleaned. If you're afraid, if you're afraid her spit might wash away some of the fish guts, said Mr Tanaka, take them home with you. I've got plenty more. It isn't the fish guts, sir. I'd say her blood will be the cleanest thing to hit this floor since you and I were born. Go ahead, Mr Tanaka said, this time talking to me. Spit it out. There I sat on that sliming table, uncertain what to do. I thought it would be terrible to disobey Mr Tanaka, but I'm not sure I would have found the courage to spit if one of the men hadn't leaned to the side and pressed a finger against one nostril to blow his nose onto the floor. Oh, so disgusting. After seeing this, I couldn't bear to hold anything in my mouth a moment longer, and spat out the blood, just as Mr. Tanaka had told me to. All the men walked away in disgust, except Mr. Tanaka's assistant, named Sugi. Mr. Tanaka told him to go and fetch Dr. Muro. I don't know where to find him, said Sugi, though what he really meant was, I think... Uh, oh, I think, was that he wasn't interested in helping. I told Mr Tanaka the doctor had been at our house a few minutes earlier. Where is your house? Mr Tanaka asked. It's the little tipsy house, up on the cliffs. What do you mean, tipsy house? It's the one that leads to the side, like it's had too much to drink. Mr Tanaka didn't seem to know what to make of this. Well, Sugi... Walk up towards Sakamoto's tipsy house and look for Dr. Mura. You won't have trouble finding him. Just listen for the sound of his patients screaming when he pokes them. Huh? <laughs> I imagined Mr. Tanaka would go back to his work after Sugi had left, but instead he stood near the table, a long while. A long while looking at me. Yes. Okay. I felt my face beginning to burn. Finally, he said something. I thought was very clever. You've got an eggplant on your face, little daughter of Sakamoto. He went to a drawer and took out a small mirror to show it to me. My lip was swollen and blue, just as he'd said. What I really want to know, he went on, is how you came to have such extraordinary eyes, and why you don't look more like your father. The eyes are my mother's, I said, but as for my father, he's so wrinkled I've never known what he really looks like. You'll be wrinkled yourself one day. But some of his wrinkles are what are the way he's made, I said. The back of his head is as old as the front, but it's as smooth as an egg. That is an irrespectful thing to say about your father, Mr Tanaka told me, but I suppose it's true. Then he said something that made my face blush so red, I'm sure my lips look pale. So how did a wrinkled old man with an egg for a head... Wait, 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 hold up. Rewind, rewind. So how did a wrinkled old man with an egg for a head father... A beautiful girl like you Oh father was a verb, my bad. How did an ugly man have a daughter like you? That's what he was saying, okay? <laughs> In the years since, I've been called beautiful more often than I can remember. Though of course, geisha are always called beautiful, even those who want. But when Mr Tanaka said it to me, before I've before I've bleh, before I'd ever heard of such a thing as a geisha, I could almost believe it was true. After Doctor Mura turned it to my lip, and I bought the incense my father had sent me for, I walked home in a state of such agitation. I don't think there could have been more activity inside me if I had been an anthill. Hell, that's clever. Yeah. Well, okay. (laughs) I would have had an easier time if my emotions had pulled me in the same direction, but it wasn't so simple. I'd been blown about like a scrap of paper in the wind. Somewhere between the various thoughts about my mother, somewhere past the discomfort in my lip. There nestled a pleasant thought I tried again and again to bring into focus. It was about Mr Tanaka. No surprise there. Um, I stopped on the cliffs and gazed out to the sea, where the waves, even after the storm, were still like sharpened stones, and the sky had taken on the brown tone of mud. I made sure no one was watching me, and then clutched the incense to my chest, and said Mr Tanaka's name into the whistling wind, over and over, until I felt satisfied. I had heard the music in every syllable. I know it sounds foolish of me, and indeed it was, but I was only a confused little girl. After we'd finished our dinner, and my father had gone to the village to watch the other fishermen play Japanese chess, Satsu and I um, cleaned the kitchen in silence. I tried to remember how Mr Tanaka had made me feel, but in the cold quiet of the house it had slipped away from me. Instead I felt a persistent icy dread at the thought of my mother's illness. I found myself wondering how long it would be until she was buried out in the village graveyard along with my father's other family. What would become of me afterward? With my mother dead, Satsu would act in her place, I suppose. I watched my sister scrub the iron pot that had cooked our soup. But even though it was right before her, even though her eyes were pointed at the thing, I couldn't tell she was seeing. she wasn't seeing it. She went on scrubbing it long after it was clean. Finally, I said to her, Satsu-san, I don't feel well. Go outside and heat the bath, she told me, and brushed her unruly hair from her eyes with one of her wet hands. I don't want a bath, I said Satsu. Oh, I said, Satsu, mommy is gonna die. This pot is cracked, look. It isn't cracked, I said. That line has always been there. But how did the water just get out then? You sloshed it out, I watched you. For a moment I could tell that Satsu was feeling something very strongly, which translated itself onto her face as a look of extreme puzzlement, just as so many of her feelings did. But she said nothing further to me. She only took the pot from the stove and walked towards the floor to dump it out. Towards the door, sorry. So that was the end of chapter one. We have some time, although there isn't a strict time limit, I just try and do these around forty-ish minutes. So I will start chapter 2 and then end it here. Leave you wanting more, you know? (laughs) I gotta say, if you haven't listened to the other episodes, or even if you have, this is the most focused I've been so far. I'm kind of proud. I'm not sure if it's because it's like a story. Maybe that's the case. Speaking of, actually, I recorded an episode the other day that I'm going to post in about a month's time. So this time, it wasn't that I recorded it and deleted it. No, it's actually that I pre-recorded it, you could say. And I'm really excited for this one. Um, It's quite short and it will come out in about a month, as I said. And I filmed a YouTube video to go along with it so you can actually see me reading it. Um, And actually the YouTube version and the audio podcast version is slightly different. But um, yeah, I'm excited for that. And when it comes out, I will explain it properly. But do look out for that. It's going to be great. Um, But yeah, let me read a little bit of chapter two. I think it's going quite well so far. Let me know how you're finding the story. Chapter 2, page 18 The following morning, to take my mind off of my troubles, I went swimming in the pond, just inland from our house, amid a grove of pine trees. The children from the village went there most mornings when the weather was right. Satsu came too sometimes, wearing a scratchy bathing dress she'd made from our father's old fishing clothes. It wasn't a very good bathing dress, because it sagged at her chest whenever she bent over, and one of the boys would scream, Look, you can see Mount Fuji, but she wore it just the same around noontime. I decided to return home for something to eat. Satsu had left much earlier than earlier with the Sugi boy, who was the son of Mr. Tak Tanaka's assistant. She acted like a dog around him when he went somewhere he would well, when he went somewhere, he looked back over his shoulder to signal that she should follow, and she always did no no, no, that's terrible. I guess she was a kid I didn't expect to see her again until after dinner time but as I neared the house I caught sight of her path I caught sight of her on the path ahead of me leaning against a tree Um, to be honest I think I'll just end there because I'm starting to get tongue tied and that's just not good Um, but yeah if you enjoyed this so far let me know and I could always continue this another time there are how many pages in total let's check there are 428 pages and we are on 18, so, you know, not that much left. <laughs> it's possible, anything's possible. Maybe I need to get past chapter 3 for myself, um, and yeah. There's another book actually that I wanted to read, there's a few that I've cropped up on my reading list now, which is kind of cool, right, because I went from not reading anything to now kind of having a reading list, which I need to formally write up. Um And it can only be accessed on, like, academic sites like JSTOR, the one that I wanted to read. Um, So I tried to get someone to help me access that book. It hasn't worked so far, but hopefully soon, Um, because I'm looking forward to reading that. There's that one. And then there's another book that I need to just try and find, which is another well-known book. I think it's called The Pedagogy of the Oppressed, if you've heard of it. I mean, you may have, because it's very famous. Then I'm sure you have good things to say. Let me know what you think. The other book, I can't remember the title, but it's about politics and um, sectarianism in Islam, I think. And then I wanted to read... Um, I don't want to give it away because I probably will read it soon. But I wanted to read a famous book that was turned into a film. And is a bit on the sad side, I think. Um, but yeah, these are a few of the things that are to come. I hope that's exciting and intriguing. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Have a great day or good night if you're going to sleep. And see you next time. Damn me, I always say that. I will let you hear me next time. <laughs> okay, bye.